This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC. Terms and conditions apply. I'm Mil Zacharias, and you're listening to Eat for the Planet. On this show, we try to answer the question, how can we eat in a way that nourishes us without starving the planet? The show features conversations with food industry leaders, health and sustainability experts, as well as entrepreneurs and creative minds who are redefining the future of food. In this episode, I speak with Dan Gluck, managing partner at Power Plant Ventures, a growth equity fund investing in emerging food, beverage, food service, and food tech companies. Power Plant provides capital, strategic guidance, and operating expertise to visionary teams leading disruptive plant-centric brands. Notable portfolio companies include breakout brands such as Beyond Meat, Ripple Foods, Thrive Market, and Appeal Sciences. In this conversation, we talk about Dan's background and how he got his start in the food industry as an investor and an entrepreneur. Dan shares some of the lessons he learned from his experience building Health Warrior into a nationally recognized brand that was acquired by Pepsi in 2018. We then dive into Power Plant Ventures and their unique approach to investing in the plant-based food industry. We also spend a good amount of time discussing the short and long-term impacts of COVID-19 on the retail and food service channels of the industry, including which COVID-19 consumption trends are here to stay. If you are interested in the present and future of the food industry and how investors like Dan are driving the growth of innovative new companies, this episode has a lot of incredible insights. Dan believes we're in the early stages of a plant-based food revolution, and to find out why he thinks plant-based cheese and pet food are some of the many exciting categories to keep an eye out for in the years ahead, listen in. Dan Glock from Power Plant Ventures, thank you so much for joining us on the Eat for the Planet podcast. Great to be here, Neil. Let's start sort of right in the beginning. I know we have a lot of ground to cover today. At least I plan to cover a lot of ground. Let's start with what got you interested in food and health to begin with. Yeah, so uh, health and wellness has really played a major role in my entire life. Uh, I would say that it really has been ingrained in my DNA since birth. Uh, as a kid, I grew up and I played every sport, uh, you know, from from baseball to soccer to basketball to tennis. 
I was extremely competitive. I remember uh, actually uh, just sharing this story with a friend of mine, how, how I used to always feel compelled to win the elementary school presidential fitness awards. I don't know if you had those growing up, but uh, distinctly, I remember as a first, second, third, fourth grader, how they used to have, you know, contests of who could do the most pull-ups and the push-ups and run the fastest mile. Uh, and so that was something that was always really important to me. Uh, and then as I got a little older, I became more narrowly focused on playing t- tennis competitively which led me to become nationally ranked throughout high school. And then I went on to play division one tennis. Uh, and so, you know, health and fitness was important. And then as I started to train more, I had a lot of influence from coaches and parents on the importance of diet. So very early on, I was very aware of the benefits of eating a healthy uh, whole food plant-based diet. It was something that was done in my home. I had some uh, very unique tennis coaches growing up. One of them was actually a raw vegan. Uh, and he actually lived with us for a period of time. And, and again, this is in the 1980s and 90s or so. And I grew up somewhat in a blue collarish type town. So it was a little odd uh, that, that this is how I grew up. And one of my other tennis instructors got me into meditation at a young age. Wow. And I was doing sun salutations on the tennis court. Uh, and so, you know, diet and food was really important to me. And then I would say later in life, uh, I started to, you know, as I continued to develop my, my passion for healthy eating and sports, I began to really make the connection uh, to eating for the environment. Uh, and so it really came full circle in terms of why this became important to me. Wow, that's cool. I mean, you've been at the health and fitness thing since very early on, which is um kind of uh so wait so do you did your career then take you in that direction so you were playing tennis did you end up working in the fitness well, industry or the health industry <laughs> good question so um you know a little little more about my background I, I have a bit of an entrepreneurial uh, spirit as well in my dna when i was in high school uh, given my focus on playing tennis i became i had my own rack tennis racket streaming business which actually is a, a phenomenal business because i got to work from home and as a you know teenager was making ten dollars an hour which uh, at the time that was well above minimum wage uh actually it was ten dollars a half hour got ten dollars per racket and it took me like 20 30 minutes to string a, a racket so, and I became actually, I was uh, stringing tennis rackets for two country clubs exclusively, as well as became the official stringer for the Yale uh, tennis team. So I was actually making thousands of dollars in high school, more than probably most high schoolers. And, uh, and then uh, in high school and throughout college, I actually got a job parlaying my experience in tennis and sports at HBO Sports, uh, uh, working at Wimbledon and the French Open. Uh, so every summer for four summers, I would go over to England and, and Paris, London and Paris, uh, to work at uh, both tennis tournaments. And I was really close to going into uh, sports, you know, broadcasting hmm. and media, but ended up taking a bit of a turn last minute and went into finance. Uh, so I, I did have early aspirations to find sort of my my my, you know, find a job with my interests. In, in sports, but ultimately I, I started my career in finance. Wow, so you, you pivoted from from the adventures of traveling to the French <laughs> Open and Wimbledon to uh, perhaps, you know, seeing better opportunities in the finance world, at least monetarily. So I'm assuming you worked in New York for a few years. Yeah, so I, I graduated school in uh, in the year 2000 and, and 
kind of went through more of the traditional finance route. I, I'm a bit of a yin and yang and extremely competitive and type A, but that's balanced with my sort of, you know, passion for the outdoors and and humanities. But uh, I worked in uh, in New York for 15 years, started in consulting my first year, but then made a transition to the investment and investment management industry and worked for a hedge fund. Uh, so I was a partner and a portfolio manager at a multi-billion dollar hedge fund, kind of doing the the Wall Street thing uh, and, and, and actually found it really interesting. Uh, I, I, I loved it. I can't say I love New York City. We can talk a little <laughs> about that. I now live in California. My wife and I eventually moved out to California about five years ago. But, uh, you know, just learned a ton uh, while I was there. Just cut my teeth early on, uh, jumping right into the investment management world and there's no better way to, to learn about how to run, operate, you know, a business than, than to invest in mature businesses. Yeah. Uh, so uh, that's really where I started my career. Wow. And then so how did the food industry thing come about? Like, how did you eventually end up starting Health Warrior? I mean, that seems like yeah, a so, bit of a leap yes. from running being in a hedge fund in New York. Yeah. So uh, I always maintain this passion for health and wellness and fitness and it was the, the outside of my professional world in the investment management industry, quote unquote, on Wall Street. Uh, I became a very competitive triathlete and endurance athlete. Uh, I was doing everything from Ironmans to marathons to ultra marathons. A lot of my friends were were in the fitness and health industry. Uh, one of my uh, someone who I became friendly with, uh, a guy by the name of Jesse Itzler, uh, oh. He invested in. I don't know if you've ever had Jesse on your podcast, no. actually, but he's he's um he's, it's another story. Very interesting entrepreneur uh, who also is plant based, by the way. Uh, it, and uh, he was an investor in or in Zico coconut water. He was thinking he's a friend. He was thinking about he was running an endurance race. He was thinking about starting his own coconut water company after he learned about the benefits uh, that coconut water had on hydration, and he ended up. Uh, identifying Zico coconut water, which as you know, my partner, Mark Rampola mm -hmm. uh, is the founder of. And when he told me about the opportunity, uh, I got excited and invested in Zico as well. And so that uh, predated my me starting Health Warrior. So that was really my first foray into food. And I watched how Mark built Zico from the ground up and what it took. And that really was one of the catalysts to sort of give me the inspiration to start Health Warrior. And the way Health Warrior came about was, again, going back to sort of my roots in fitness, uh, I read a book called Born to Run, which I, I think you're familiar with, which <laughs> is all about the, the Terra Humara uh, Indians in, or Mexicans, I should say, in, uh, in the, living in the Copper Mountains of Mexico. And they're known uh, for their insane abilities to compete and run in endur you know, endurance races. Part of their whole society revolves around endurance running and racing. Uh, they run these 100-mile races. And what this author, Christopher McDougall, discovered and talked a little about in the book that is one of their main sources of sustenance and fuel were chia seeds. And now, you know, chia seeds for, for those of us who are at the forefront of, of health and wellness and food trends today seem very common, but seven, eight years ago, when I had the idea of starting Health Warrior, no one even knew what chia seeds were other than the famous chia pet. Uh, people used to laugh when I said, you know, that you can actually consume chia seeds and that they happen to be one of the most nutritious foods that you can potentially eat, you know, packed with antioxidant, antioxidants, omega-3s, 
high source of plant-based protein. And uh, I saw an opportunity there. They were, it was a, you know, this was a product that was indigenous to another part of the world, genuinely healthy, yet no one knew about them here in the U.S. And that was kind of a similar story to, to how Mark built Zico coconut water. And so I took a bit of a uh, page out of his playbook and decided to build my own company. And so that's how we, uh, we formed Health Warrior. Wow, that's a cool story. I mean, I remember hearing about Health Warrior. It was definitely around that time when uh, it was like the second, I guess the first wave of superfoods that were coming about over here. Uh, and most of them were being sold uh, it, you know, in packages, and not many uh, uh, companies had figured out ways to take these superfoods and productize them into interesting CPG brands. And I remember Health Warriors' big pitch was, um, I, it may have even been oh, when I was running my first media company that we were sent some bars. Um, I'll have to check mm. the dates. But I remember trying it and being like, oh, that's cool. They found a way to make uh, this into a convenient package, kind of fuse the you know, the energy bar thing with the superfood. And of course, everyone had heard the legendary stories of how the chia seeds can power you to run for miles. And so, no, very fascinating. And I, it's, I, I didn't actually know that you got the inspiration from that book, but that kind of makes sense now to think about. Yeah, it. no, it's, uh, again, you know, you, you follow your passions and it leads to opportunity. And so uh, I, I, everything I've done kind of, and we talked a little about it, but you know, all of my interests have just continued to lead me to, uh, to, 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 to new endeavors and places of interest. So uh, it was great that reading a book about endurance athletes while I was training for an Ironman led me to starting a company. Yeah. Yeah. And we're obviously, pretty, you know, we could easily spend uh, 30 to 40 minutes just going through that journey that you had with Health Warrior. So we're obviously fast forwarding in many ways right now, because there's yeah. so much you're doing now that is super fascinating and interesting and relevant as well. But before I kind of move on to Power Plant and the state of the world and your take on where things are headed next, I, I do kind of want to pause and have you reflect a bit on that that journey you went through with Health Warrior, starting this company driven by the passion that you had uh, for health, fitness, and the discovering the power of chia seeds, and then watching that grow and then eventually, you know, exiting from that company. Like, what are the, from a from an entrepreneurial standpoint, what did you, like, what were your big takeaways, lessons that you learned through that, those few years? Uh, yeah, as you said, we could spend hours on this, and I, uh, my, my, my partners and I have always said we wanted to write a book. But uh, I would say, if I had to choose two of of my biggest lessons that have carried, you know, I've carried with me uh, at Power Plants uh, and in almost anything I do now in life, uh, number one is choose your partners wisely. Uh, I had two co-founders that I founded Health Warrior with. And uh, they, I, I respect them immensely. They were the two things for me that are points of parity. And, you know, I would say if you can have both of these, the rest will work itself out. But uh, integrity and hard work and, and a little grit. And uh, both of my, my co-founders, you know, are, are, are ex exemplary uh you know, examples of, of this. Uh, we never really had one major argument or disagreement. You know, sure, there were things that we had different opinions on, but uh, the entire, you know, journey of building Health Warrior made our friendship only stronger. 
Um, and, and, you know, on the other hand, we, we had some, you know, partners and employees that I think we compromised on, uh, you know, early on, we were raising capital brought in now, and I'm not talking about VMG, we had some friends and family, and they were just people that, you know, maybe we shouldn't have taken capital from their employees where I think maybe we, we were, you know, loose with, uh, in terms of going through the interview process, because we were growing so quickly. And uh, I, I've certainly learned, you know, the importance of staying true to who your partners are. Uh, you know, and I've taken that, you know, I, I, we work closely with our portfolio companies to ensure that. Uh, and we take it to heart uh, at PowerPlant. You know, we, we, just, we just hired a, a CFO and it took months, uh, months, you know, for, for one hire. You know, this is the, the, the eighth person on our team. And, uh, we must have seen over 100 resumes and brought in 30 candidates. I'd screened so many people because getting the right fit, especially early on, is is really important. Uh, and, th- and then point number two, I would say, is building a business is hard. <laughs> you know, I don't care what business you're in, what category, what sector, it is hard. Uh, and and and. I respect anybody who goes out there and builds a successful business because I know that even when things seemingly are going well, there are a lot of problems under the water. It's kind of like I love that analogy you've seen where you, there's always like images of a duck and they say calm on the surface, but the <laughs> duck is always pedaling like hell underneath. Uh, you know, I, I think that's a somewhat of a good analogy as, as I as I talk about this right now, uh, because it's hard. And, you know, I just remember even you know building Health Warrior when people are like, oh, you must be crushing it. You guys are killing it. And it's like under, you know, they, they don't know half the things that went into that. And there were recalls and, you know, disgruntled employees and just things that we had to battle with uh, on a daily basis. So I respect the entrepreneur's journey. And, and I really know how hard it is. And so I respect it. It also makes it makes me a better investor because, frankly, you know, I know when an entrepreneur comes to me and says, oh, my business is phenomenal. We're going to take sales from five million to 100 in the next two or three years, this, this and this. I'm like, yeah, OK, it's not going to be that easy. <laughs> like, you know, good, good, good luck. Like, you know, even our best companies typically don't have trajectory like that. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, th- those are two of the biggest lessons I've I've, I've learned. And uh, as I said, as I said, with, you know, my partners, I, I, I can't uh, you know, emphasize enough how lucky I was to work with 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 great partners. Uh, and, uh, you know, we'll get to PowerPoint power plants uh, you know, you know, shortly, but uh, I feel the same way at power plants and I, I wouldn't have it any other way. Yeah, I mean, it's so important that I mean, because there's so many different things that make a business tick and and succeed, but if forget even you know grow to this to the extent that you're lucky enough to be in the right category and at the right growth point that you someone comes in and acquires you like it happened in the case of Health Warrior. But uh, even just to run a, a profitable business, to run something and employ people and keep the wheels turning, especially in the food industry, requires like a superhuman strength of juggling you know, maybe a million balls at the same time and different skill sets. And so, yeah, I guess I love that you 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 put the team first. And, and it, it is widely used as a cliche, but at the same time, you, you can underestimate the importance of the people. And of course, on top yeah. of that, you have to 
they have to acquire the right skills and be able to build the right systems and processes to make things work. But if you get that people element wrong, none of the other things are going to fix you or actually compensate for the fact that you just can't get along and figure out how to how to fight through things that are obviously going to be tough. And you know, we're going to get to the tough times because we are in the midst of, let's be, you know, let's acknowledge we're in the midst of a global pandemic at the moment. And, you know, from a purely from an entrepreneur standpoint, many of them are facing the toughest times that they've ever faced, even if they are in the food industry and what may seem like a great time for some companies in this space because they're seeing increased demand. We're also they're also facing challenges about how to keep their employees safe, how to plan for the long term. What do they do with their, uh, you know, their product launches they had for this, uh, you know, this summer and and fall perhaps. So we'll get into all of that. But you know, first let's kind of uh, connect the dots here back to the work you're doing right now with Power Plant. I'm assuming the Power plant connection came about through Mark because you had invested in in his company. Is that how it happened? Yeah. So uh, yeah. So ultimately, uh, as I mentioned, I spent the first uh, fifteen plus years of my career in the investment management industry, but on the public market side uh, through through a, you know, the, the hedge fund side of the business. Uh, then went on to scratch the entrepreneurial itch with Health Warrior, and ultimately, you know, as I looked at, you know, as we sold uh, Health Warrior, I decided I wanted to transition out of uh, an investment role in the public markets and really better align and find the intersection of the investing experience I had with the entrepreneurial experience I gained with uh, building Health Warrior, combined with the passion I brought for health and wellness. And then last, just what I thought was a huge market opportunity, given you know, the disruption that is happening and needs to happen in the food industry. So I decided to, 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 to sort of switch gears a little bit and make that transition. And I was going down the path of actually starting my own fund focused on emerging uh, consumer facing brands in the healthy living sector. Uh, when I reconnected with Mark, uh, Mark Rampola, that is, a, a founder of Zico Coconut Water, at a conference. It was actually, a, I think, a BevNet conference, maybe, about three years ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, Mark and my partner, TK, which TK has been a guest on your show, and, and Kevin Boylan. Uh, Kevin and TK are the founders of uh, the fast, casual, uh, restaurant, plant-based restaurant chain, Veggie Grill. They had already gotten Power Plant Ventures off the ground. So they raised Power Plant Ventures Fund One in 2016. And they, when I reconnected with Mark and told them what I was working on, they were thinking about raising a second fund, thinking they wanted to bring on another partner, particularly someone with uh, institutional investing experience, but that also knew the consumer food space and preferably someone that they actually knew. Uh, and so, because, you know, Mark and TK in particular had a lot of operating experience. Kevin comes from a finance background, but more on the, on, more on the financing and banking side. And so I kind of met a lot of their requirements. And when I sort of was looking at the opportunity set of going on and hanging my own shingle, I was going to raise my own fund. I had one anchor investor, but, you know, raising your own fund is, it's tough. It was going to be sort of the sole GP and, and, and kind of build my own firm when I had the opportunity to partner with, with uh, three extremely talented, experienced, successful entrepreneurs, one which I had a long, you know, outstanding uh, relationship with, uh, it made a lot of sense. And so there are a ton of synergies. And so I joined almost two and a half years ago 
and and dove right in uh, with with the team as as the fourth partner to to really continue to build on what they started. Yeah. Yeah, it makes so much sense. And, you know, as you mentioned, TK has been a guest in the early days of this podcast, actually. So for, for those yeah. for those listening that either haven't listened to that episode or aren't familiar with Power Plant Ventures, um, obviously, it's a, it's a why don't I have you describe it really and kind of tell me more about the investment thesis and where do you see your where, where do you see Power Plant fitting within the this this new world of investors we now have that are not only focused on natural food and beverage companies, but now increasingly many that are very focused on alternative proteins, plant-based foods, disrupting the the industrial animal agriculture machine with new alternatives. Back when power plants started, there were almost none um, or maybe just a handful. Yeah. Um, so where do you fit in and tell me a little bit more about your investment thesis? Yeah. So in, in, in short, Power Plant Ventures, we're a, we're a growth equity fund that invests in emerging consumer food, beverage, food service and food tech companies. Uh, all the, and all of these companies have to be plant based. And so our, our thesis you know, really begins and evolve, revolves around the fact that we think our food system is broken. None of this is is probably new information to you or your your listeners. But, you know, we think about it as being unhealthy unsustainable, inefficient, and inhumane. You know, the statistics are just staggering when you consider all of these ailments of our food system, that 70% of Americans are overweight. It takes 10 times more fossil fuel requi- you know, is required to produce one calorie of animal protein versus plant, pros te- plant protein. 15% of greenhouse gas emissions clump- come from global livestock. And I think it's something like 70 billion animals are farmed to be slaughtered. Uh, for for food consumption, and so, you know, it's 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 broken, and 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 it needs fixing, and so that's really where a lot of you know good investors identify problems and then try to attack uh, attack those problems through you know through through capitalism essentially, and yeah. so our purpose is you know and this is um, you know our 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 brand purpose is to transform the world's health through the power of people, plants, and purpose driven companies. Uh, we actually just uh, sort of re- re- revised that. That's why it was it was a mouthful for me right now. But um, but yeah, it really is about uh, about you know about transforming and rearchitecting the global food system. And so, you know, we we have invested across the entire value chain. But as we matured as a firm and as we raised our our most recent fund, which was uh, we raised this summer, uh, we raised 165 million dollars. We're a bit more now narrowly focused on the consumer-facing brands of the food, beverage, food service, and food tech sectors, uh, and and that's really because a it's know what what we know best. Uh, we really believe in the power of specialization, and with the three with the four founders having experience building food, beverage, food service, and food tech companies, uh, you know it's really where we can add the most value. And, and we also think that when we when, when you look at the entire food system, it's massive. It's a five trillion dollar industry. And we think that, you know, one way to sort of shift uh, you know, food consumption patterns and habits is through by winning the hearts and minds of consumers. And so if we can help these brands uh, take mind share and create sustainable, pro, you know, sustainable businesses selling healthy, nutritious sustainably sourced and ethical, you know, ethical foods, uh, we're, we're, we're doing our job and we're winning. So, um, 
you know, and, and yeah, you, you brought up something else. Maybe I'll just kind of continue on. You talked about sort of the emergence of other funds. I think uh, our approach differs from some other VCs in, in a few different ways. Uh, you know, one, you know, one just being, as I said, I, I think, again, I, I talk a lot about sort of team and the importance of, you know, who's who's running a company. But, you know, we're, we're a team that has a winning track record mm-hmm. of founding, operating, scaling and investing in businesses that are creating a healthier Know, healthier world. Uh, and so I think that's really important distinction between what we're doing versus some other VCs investing in, in the food space. And it's really helped us, you know, hone what we think is somewhat of a proprietary toolkit to create value and, and meaningful impact. We're, we're really deeply ingrained in this plant-based, uh, you know, food sy- ecosystem, as, as you know, I think you're, you're right at the heart of it. And, and I think, you know, there's a tight circle right here. I think they even call it the vegan mafia, so to speak. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we, we know all of the cutting edge technology of, 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 of what's happening, what's on the forefront. We know all the players and, and that really gives us an edge. And then last, I would say what distinguishes us from some of the other investors out there uh, is that we think that we're able to to combine meaningful impact by advancing a plant-centric food system, but deliver uncompromising returns. Mm-hmm. And I think it's something that we see a lot of investors in the space that focus more on the impact. And I applaud them. There's a place for that. But I don't think that necessarily, I think there's a, often at times, because we see some of the, you know, the, the deals and companies they're backing, I, I, it's our thesis that, you know, they're compromising return uh, and they're willing to trade off return uh, for for that meaningful impact, which, again, it's phenomenal because they fund a lot of the R&D of these innovative companies. Uh, and then there's a lot of investors that don't really care about the impact and they just see an opportunity to make money because there's a lot of disruption happening. And uh, something that we work really hard uh, to achieve is is combining the two. Uh, it's it's really ingrained in sort of our mission of what we're 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 looking to do at a higher level, you know, for all all of the the, the partners, the whole team. I think you know proving this concept of conscious capitalism is something that uh, is is really important to us. Yeah. No, I think firstly, it's so for, we must acknowledge that it's it's so amazing that we're sitting here in 2020 and we can actually talk about. Uh, different sets of investors that are focused on this space because, you know, frankly, less than a decade ago, perhaps even seven, eight years ago, they weren't, no one was even paying attention to this space. So perhaps in the beginning, we needed some of those purely passion impact based investors to kick things off and give uh, some entrepreneurs and even a chance to develop a product that can. Uh, sort of get some sort of traction and 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 maybe have any some hope of disrupting uh, the incumbents in the food space. So, you know, I yeah, think we've yeah. gone through these cycles of evolution where in the beginning it has been all passion. It's like just come up with something as long as it kind of looks like cheese, as long as it's mm-hmm. made from plants. <laughs> and then, you know, the, the good news is that it actually worked. And thanks to the the effort and the belief that they had and some of those gutsy entrepreneurs that were able to take those leaps of faith in the beginning, uh, we got to a point where they showed enough success and had enough traction that now this space has become competitive, where, you know, now because of the fact that it is doing well, uh, passion alone doesn't get you that far. And you also have to have an eye on on how much of an impact you can have because 
and again, I think it's sort of intertwined because the bigger the impact from a, from a changing the world standpoint, it also more likely the bigger the return on investment. So, and Beyond Meat obviously is the clearest example of that, right? Where yes. you aim high from an impact standpoint, the founder has all the passion in the world, driven by all the right reasons, but yet uh, has built a sound company that is able to show that, that that they can be a real contender. And so now, of course, we've reached the point where you know we have the luxury to talk about uh, the passion-based inf- investors, the impact-based investors, and the fact that now you have uh, you know strategics coming in, whether it is um, you know big tech VC funds now looking into the food space, and I think that's only going to happen even more now post COVID nineteen, and we'll definitely get more into that. Next, but uh, you know, I think you definitely power plant really occupies this sweet spot in the middle, where you've got you've got four uh, you know obviously passionate, experienced, plant powered, entrepreneur former entrepreneurs, current entrepreneurs as well, who are you know leading this this investment fund uh, with so have equally a focus on the impact, but also on, you know, let's just, we understand, you understand how the food industry works, as well as how you can deliver those returns to uh, those those um, LPs that you have, uh, that have, you know, placed a bet on you because you are the ones who are uh, kind of the custodians of their funds. So I think it's super fascinating and you definitely have carved a, an interesting space for yourself. And of course, you'll have to keep adapting and evolving as this, this space continues to adapt and evolve. Yeah, no, I, I think you, you, you summarized it very well. And 100%, as I said from, from the start, there's a place for all these different types of investors uh, and particularly some of the more you know, mission-driven or early seed stage investors. Without their capital, these companies wouldn't get anywhere. Uh, and so they've they've enabled and catalyzed a lot of the growth in the sector. I think our lens, as I said, is we typically get involved a little later in the life cycle of a company uh, from from the sort of the seed stage investor. And so we're typically getting involved when a company's generating at least five million and upwards of you know thirty million, mm-hmm. where we can really accelerate the growth, mitigate the downside as well, and help these companies scale to become sustainable, profitable, durable businesses. Because without that, if all these companies fail, then we're failing the whole food system and we're not doing our job. Not only are we not providing a, a good, a, a, a phenomenal return to our investors, but then then all of this innovation is, is for nothing. Yeah. So, uh, you know, that's where, yeah, I think that's really where we start with sort of, you know, if you really kind of think about how we analyze and what we look for in these businesses, it starts with that passion and that unifying vision. We kind of look at it across five different metrics. We go really deep within them. But the number one happens to be, you know, passion. Or do they really share our values and, and do they have a core purpose and a BHAG that we, we can get around? Then we really start thinking about, well, is it the right team and culture? Uh, you know, is, is, is the founder visionary and, and does he, you know, has he or she built a compelling founding team around him or herself? We really spend a lot of time trying to understand uh, the, the, the founder and the CEO in terms of who they are as a leader, understanding their strengths, their weaknesses, through identifying their archetypes, uh, which we've been spending a lot more time on right now. Uh, and then we think a lot about the, the products, right? Uh, there needs to be, you know, we need to understand what the, the usage occasion is. 
and and what the total addressable market might be. Does it meet or exceed the rational needs and taste and experience and satiation of consumers? These are all things that you know we really have to think about. We have to really understand the brand. You know, can they really create the functional and emotional uh, points of difference and benefits to the consumer that they can break out? And then last, and, and this is really where I would say a lot, some, you know, some of the earlier stage investors or more just impact investors, again, they play a major role in, in, in this ecosystem, but the operating model ha- has, to, has to be sound. Can they, make, can they ever make money mm-hmm. uh, is really what it comes down to. Uh, do they have the right you know, sales strategy that delivers growth and leaves a little white space for future M&A? Do they have methodical uh, and targeted marketing initiatives? You know, do they have the right channel strategy? Uh, do they have the right discipline, financial controls and processes in place, operational excellence, KPIs, all these things? This is really now becoming sort of the guts of the company. And if they don't have that, that's when the wheels start falling off. Yeah, and that's really where you also bring in your, you know, individual experiences with your yeah. own companies where, you know, you're not just sitting there opining as um, as someone who's just written a check, but have also have war stories to share yourself. And you may not know exactly uh, the space that they're in, but you have a general understanding of what it takes to take something from the ground up and then, you know, make it this well-oiled machine that is capable of scaling and, you know, eventually exiting in some capacity. So, yeah, it's, it's something that we talk a lot about uh, is is sort of taking the experience that we have firsthand, creating value as founders from identifying the opportunity to really architecting, you know, the breakout brand and product to leading the early stage growth, but then thinking about how to build a scalable model executing on it. And then in the case of Zico and Health Warrior, you know, selling to a strategic. And so we've seen that. And now we've seen it by, you know, we've got 20 plus companies in our portfolio. So for the last several years, we've been investing in companies all doing, you know, you know, following similar paths. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you start ident- having some pattern recognition and there are different frameworks that we can use to apply to different companies. And that's really where I think the, the, the edge begins to, to play a major factor. Yeah, and I have to, you know, acknowledge that we are sitting here. I'm at home, and so are you. Normally, I do this in person, uh, and we had originally planned to do this in person at some point, but uh, we're we're doing this remotely because that's where everyone is finding themselves these days, thanks to the global pandemic. Uh, so let's talk a little bit now about how that has, you know, I think again we can just we can spend another hour on this, but but we obviously don't have that much time. But I want to make sure we do touch on some key themes, which is how has COVID nineteen firstly impacted your portfolio companies and you know generally the food industry. Yeah, uh, yeah. So um, yeah, it's there's a lot uh, to to discuss there. But what I'd say is I'll I'll, maybe I'll I'll answer this by first talking about some of the short term impacts. And then we could talk a little about some longer term impacts and thematic uh, changes that we think will will evolve. Uh, So in the short term, uh, you know, some of these might seem obvious. Uh, Some of those who are not deeply immersed in the food sector, uh, you know, maybe it's a little more nuanced to them. But uh, I would say, Number one, we've seen in the short term uh, a huge shift uh, in terms of calorie consumption from food service and out of home 
to in-home and, and CBG. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you know, packaged food and beverage companies initially have benefit, benefited tr- tremendously as a result of this. Uh, at-home at food consumption has increased almost 90% right now of total consumption. Uh, so that's a massive shift in, 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 in habits. Uh, number two, again, early on and, and, and even continuing is this concept of, of panicked pantry loading and food hoarding. Uh, we particularly saw that in the month of March. It trickled into April. It's beginning to slow. Uh, but uh, you definitely began to see, you know, huge tick ups and people just stockpiling their homes with shelf stable foods like soups and frozen meals and pizzas. We saw frozen meat crackers. Uh, so that was something that we saw in, in the short term. So so those were two major themes. Um, you know, and uh, the, the other uh, theme that we've seen as a third theme is the fact that consumer spending is beginning to decline in what are deemed non-essential CPG categories. Uh, so that's something to, to pay attention to. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, what, what else? Those are, um, you know, I, I, a few other themes I guess I should think about is, you know, we're beginning to see consumers are buying products marked as immune boosting. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we've seen some companies uh, materially benefit from from their immunity SKUs. Uh, one of our portfolio companies, Vibe Organic, their best-selling SKU always has been and now continues to be a uh, an immunity boost, uh, with you know, which is packed with uh, you know ginger and turmeric and other uh, you know immunity boosting additives, uh, all natural, of course. Uh, and so that's that's something that uh, is, continues to be uh, a short term impact. We're also seeing a big spike in alcohol. Uh, you know, uh, you know, typically people you know begin to sort of indulge in, in in drinking. There is actually correlations between recession, recessionary environments, and 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 alcohol consumption. Uh, and and it's interesting. Also, the last two things that I'll say is. There's a real barbell approach also to people shifting towards healthier foods, but also more indulgent foods. Uh, and so it's hard to sort of par- parse through that data because it's somewhat conflicting, but we're seeing both uh, both actually benefit. Yeah, I know that's one. That's a puzzling one. I've been trying to figure that out because I keep telling people now health and immunity is more important than ever before. Yet then there's also data that's showing that people are reaching out for comfort foods because they're just, you know, at home and bored and kind of need an escape from this this madness that we're all going through right now. So, yeah. um, and, in, and, in, in, yeah, in periods ahead. of uncertainty, people like they, they don't want anything too new. So they go what's comfortable. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. And from a, you know, uh, obviously CPG brands specifically, if they were not, I guess, companies that didn't have too much of a food service focus uh, or were able to pivot quickly are seeing an uptick in demand, obviously. But at the same time, they've got to manage, uh, you know, production issues and work, you know, employee safety, as well as deal with um, some disruptions in distribution. and, And then you have, you know, retailers kind of changing their priorities, whether it's uh, yeah. some saying deprioritizing uh, the vegetarian category, the plant-based category in the short term because of they're trying to manage their their inventory. So have you have your companies generally 
And I guess this comes back to the stage at which you invest in companies, right? You generally come in um, post, you know, you, you don't invest pre-revenue, so you're coming in when they've at least been around for some time. So I'm assuming they're 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 better off from a cash flow standpoint. So are you finding that generally looking at your portfolio? And I and I'm sure it's tough to make generalizations because you have a pretty diverse portfolio. Are you seeing that they are able to weather the storm, uh, or at least in some ways even actually find opportunities in this? Yes, I, I it's 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 hard because we do have a pretty diverse portfolio, but by and large. As I said, in the terms of the short-term impacts on the cons- on more on the consumer food and beverage side, well, we could talk a little about food service, but uh, on the on the on on the on the packaged food and beverage side, most of the companies had phenomenal Q1s. You know, just about every one of our companies beat expectations, uh, beat beat their internal budgets, mm-hmm. uh, despite some of the logistical issues of you know having people work from home, but. Given the, the 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 pantry loading, given the shift in con- where calories are being consumed, and so there's an element that that's going to sustain. Yet that's also being offset by some nuanced factors, such as retailers that are also don't have you know a full set of employees that are working remotely. So typically, the way grocers work is they have you know biannual or quarterly reset schedules where they bring you know, they consider new products. And often, you know, the case right now, some of those meetings are being canceled. And so they're not reviewing new products. So even though a lot of our companies are not necessarily, uh, you know, startups, they're still in massive growth phase where if they're, it's a company that's generating $10 million of sales, trying to go to 50 or 100 in the next two or three years or so, uh, a lot of that growth is predicated on new distribution. So if certain retailers are simply canceling meetings to consider, you know, reviewing new product innovations, either uh, for a company that's not on the shelf and or for a company that, you know, they're currently not distributing, that becomes problematic. Uh, you know, but that said, again, similar to what we just talked about, consumers also begin to shift towards brands that they're familiar with. So those that that uh, you know are already had had strong velocities, which is typically where we are investing in brands like breakout brands with with a strong core set of consumers. Those consumers are even buying more of their product. Um, but uh, you know, I would say that my bigger concern is just what happens in a recessionary environment, mm-hmm. uh, which is where I think we're heading. And so, while there's been a sharp spike, the question really will be: is how do these brands? Uh, you know, how do they succeed in in a in a recessionary environment? And, uh, you know, my, my view from like the investor lens is that we're, it's going to be it's really going to be sort of a, a story of, of two different worlds in that I think competition is only going to become, you know, increasingly more challenging and there's going to be a lot of failures out there. Uh, I think there's there's no room for weak players in a recess, recessionary environment. And I think those that uh, have built the right businesses with the right teams and the right product and the right needs right now to meet the, the consumer where they are, uh, are, are actually going to even do better than they would have just in a normal operating environment that we've been operating in for the last several years. So uh, I think the, you know, the, the, the best will really rise to the top. And you know, if you look at other industries, you look at the food industry, sometimes some of the best companies are created out of recessions. 
Uh, so I certainly think that there's a huge opportunity for some of our portfolio companies to take share. And a lot of them are doing that. It, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting because there are some companies, two in particular right now, that they've seen a big, big boost to their business. Uh, they're, they're right on trend, uh, with, with, you know, sort of what the consumer needs are today. They're considered an essential functional item. Sales are outpacing their expectations and we're going to play offense. We're, we're going to really grab it. You know, some of them are going to raise a little more money, uh, at, at valuations. Maybe it's a flat round from, you know, just a couple of months ago, just in, you know, given this environment, some even at premiums, uh, because they actually have a bigger opportunity in front of themselves right now. Uh, others, though, you know, are going to struggle. We're, you know, we're, we're, our bar is even more set, even higher now when we're looking at new brands because we just know how difficult it's going to be to to break out uh, in the next, you know, however long this this does persist for. Yeah, and I know you don't necessarily have a crystal ball, although you do get paid to kind of look into the future with spreadsheets and a lot of data backing you, of course. But, um, you know, what are your thoughts on, you know, the post-COVID world, right? Yeah, you mentioned we might be in a recessionary environment. Mm -hmm. um, that's one issue, and you can't ignore that. But from a consumer trend standpoint, do you do you think some of these these current some of the current data that we're seeing is going to turn into or translate into longer term trends where certain yeah. types of food and categories are more popular than others? Yes. I, uh, number one, you know, we're, we were very early investors in Thrive Market. In fact, we were their first sort of institutional check. And online growth, you know, Thrive's done phenomenally well. Mm -hmm. uh, but Online grocery sales as a percent of total sales relative to other consumer categories has been rather anemic. Mm -hmm. So while Thrive has been growing at a phenomenal pace, uh, grocery sales are less than 3% of, uh, of online shopping. And I think, you know, other, if you look at other consumer categories like apparel and other you know, technology and hardware equipment, it's nearly 20%. And I think this is the tipping point. I think there's no turning back right now. And this has only accelerated the trend of online grocery. I mean, anyone who historically used to still go to a store and now gets, you know, a Thrive Market order, a good eggs, imperfect foods delivered to their doorstep, Instacart. I don't know how anyone could go back to, you know, spending an hour and a half in a, in a grocery store or multiple times a day, three, you know, or a week, three times a week going and picking up specialty items. I, I, I just don't see it happening. I mean, sure, it's going to happen. But I think as far as where the trend is going, this is going to be a secular trend for sure. Uh, if I also had to be a little bit, you know, I don't know if you would even call this contrarian in light of COVID, but. I think dining will become more of a premium experience. Uh, I think res restaurants are going to be forced to close. And with potentially new layouts, I think supply will be constrained. So if you look at it from a supply and demand perspective, I think there's going to be a supply constraint. And uh, dining might become much more of a, of a premium experience. And so I think at-home eating, meal preparation. And then last, I, I think also I, I in, in my, you know, I, I think people are just going to focus more on healthier foods. Uh, we talked a little about the fact that some people are turning towards indulgent foods and alcohol in this environment, but how can you not think about your health in, as it relates to this? Uh, you know, we certainly have seen some statistics about comorbidity with respect to 
uh, correlations of deaths and COVID. I don't really want to go down that route because I know there's a lot of healthy young people getting sick and, and, mm-hmm. and it's, it's very serious. But, you know, there are a lot of cases, you know, you, it's not a surprise that, you know, people with compromised immune systems are, are facing more cha- challenges and health risks from, co- from, from COVID. And so if this isn't a wake up call for people to, to eat healthier foods right now and take care of their bodies, uh, I'm not sure what is. Yeah, I know. Um, yeah, and so I'm encouraged by that. And so I think you're you're going to continue to see a movement towards healthier foods. I think you're spot on on all those observations. I mean, especially the fact that the the online grocery one, the e-commerce component, where I think it's one of those habitual patterns that we've fallen into. People just prefer, they, they would go to the grocery store because they just prefer to see and they see the produce that they're buying and they would prefer to touch and feel and they enjoy that experience. Well, this crisis has forced them to consider other options. And I suppose once you make that leap, it's, it's kind of going to be tough, not for everyone, but for many to go back mm-hmm. to the way things were, knowing that there's an easier way that's just as good, if not better. So, yeah, and I, I think it, and the services and the service providers are only going to get better, the, the companies, you know, at, at, at delivering on this experience. And I think they can make it even a, a better experience. I, I also, you know, in my utopian view, I hope that people who have been forced into sort of a simpler life don't complain about the things that are seemingly, you know, on a relative basis, uh, unimportant in life, right? And mm-hmm. complaining about that, you know, you're, you, you didn't get the perfect ripe peach. Is it, is it so bad? You still got an amazing fresh peach delivered to your door, right? Let's yeah. be grateful for for the fact that we actually have the ability to have you know fresh, amazing produce uh, to to consume, uh, versus you know complaining that the delivery was an hour late or you got three peaches when you asked for four. So yeah. if I, if I had to sort of be a little utopian about sort of what this might, how this might ground people a little more. And to focus and be grateful for what we do have, I, I hope that's something that comes out of this. Yeah, yeah, I love that point. No, I think it's so relevant. I just think one big lesson everyone's facing, whether it's in the context of food or beyond, is that it's just a focus on the essentials and and what's important and what's needed. And 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 you realize it's made a lot of people kind of, especially those of us that are lucky enough just to be home and working and and not on the front lines fighting this this battle to really, you know, reconsider a lot of things in our lives that were probably unnecessary and wasteful. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of lot of silver linings as well while we are still kind of in the midst of all of this. Um, in, in terms of the plant-based food space and, and, you know, everything, if you look at the numbers in the last few years, it's been growing year over year. And I know Power Plant has been involved right from the beginning, kind of a leading fund in the space. Um, and you've probably seen it go from you know nothing to where it is now, where nearly every category has seen du- double-digit growth. Where on the animal, uh, similar foods in the animal category or the animal foods in these categories are either flatlining or declining in sales. Uh, instead of like you know what I, if I had talked to you pre-COVID, I would be asking you specifically which categories are poised for growth, and I'd still want to know that, but. At the same time, I'd also love your insights into, you know, do you, has this basically put a damper on certain categories that otherwise would be doing well? Or or do you sense that in the post-COVID world or this new world that we're going to be living in, that 
plant-based is going to just continue to accelerate and rise across categories? Yeah, I think we are in the early stages of a major food revelation as it relates to plant-based foods uh, in, yeah, beginning to, to, to take significant share. So, uh, yeah, I think this is only going to accelerate it. I don't see anything that's necessarily because due to COVID that mm-hmm. will slow that down. Right. And do you see any specific categories that you would pick as as ones that have more room for growth? Or, you know, obviously some are more crowded yeah. and competitive. Others definitely have room for some innovation. Which Would you pick any ones as your top bets for the next three to five years? Yeah, you know, so we, we tend to be, when looking at investment opportunities, we, we look at things from a top-down perspective and, and identify categories, sectors, themes, but we're also bottom-up uh, mm-hmm. investors as well, where we just want to be surprised and delighted by an entrepreneur building a phenomenal business that maybe we hadn't even thought about. But uh, I would say from from sort of a top-down perspective, plant-based milks feel crowded. Uh, there's been some huge breakout winners uh, most recently with, you know, Califia and Oatly really being dominating brands. Uh, we do think there will be a next wave eventually of, of breakout brands. But uh, right now, uh, we're, we haven't really necessarily found who that breakout brand is. We, we are investors in Ripple. So we have a lot of confidence that they can continue to, to take market share. So I think there's a big opportunity for them, but we haven't really found anyone else uh, quite yet. So we find that to be a little crowded. And again, going to sort of the growth that we've seen in the plant-based uh, milk category, that's a category now that's roughly 13% of traditional dairy sales, of total milk sales, uh, which, you know, if you look at other non-dairy categories, which is where I guess my answer is, is leading us to, uh, they're typically less than 3%. So if you look at yogurt as a category, butter and cheese, those are all categories that were very confident will continue to break out. We did, in fact, uh, just announced recently that we invested in a company called The Collaborative, which is the number one and number two selling uh, plant-based yogurt company in Europe and the UK. Uh, So they have a material business overseas, and we recently invested in them to help them grow their U.S. business. uh, Plant-based yogurt sales are are far outpacing traditional dairy sales. And I think the biggest hindrance has been flavor. And this company has completely nailed the flavor and texture profile, which we think other plant-based yogurt companies has not done. If you haven't tried it yet, uh, definitely look for it on the shelves. Still in limited distribution, given they're just growing their U.S. business, but Mm -hmm. it's phenomenal. So we're excited about that. We think cheese is, is another interesting category and butter to a certain extent, but cheese even more so. You know, we, we have uh, the real a great advantage of, of, of having TK and Kevin, my partners, as the founders of Veggie Grill, uh, which is, you know, the largest plant-based food chain in the country with uh, nearly 37 locations. And so we can use them as a test kitchen. And we really know sort of what works well with, uh, you know, in food service in particular and what consumers want. And we think cheese has been an area that has been underserved. And there are a few companies out there now that have come out with some really innovative products that have phenomenal uh, flavor, texture, meltability that we think will be big breakout brands. And so we're closely watching that category. And then maybe a sleeper category uh, would be plant uh, pet food. 
Hmm. So definitely a category that uh, is, is nascent right now, plant-based pet food. And I would say animal-free pet food is, 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 is certainly not the norm. But if I wanted to take a contrarian view, uh, that is something that as, the, as people continue to adopt a plant-based lifestyle and if, you know, as, as some of our internal views and my views of what, what sort of the implications of, of animal farming, you know, what, what the implications are for animal farming going forward and potential taxes on, on that, I think that you could see consumers begin to adopt plant-based or animal-free uh, if we think about what uh, cell-based meat can do for pet food. And so that's a category that we're spending a lot of time on right now. Interesting. Well, all of those are really amazing insights. I have a quick question before I jump to my my final question for our discussion today. Uh, what are your thoughts on you know cell-based as well as recombinant proteins as produced from microbial fermentation? I know Power Plant, as far as I know, has not invested in that space yet. Uh, High-level thoughts on that, and would you ever invest in it? Yeah, I think I, I do think this is a big opportunity, uh, and uh, you know, ultimately, we Power Plant would invest in in these types of companies because ultimately, it is helping take animals out of the food system and helps address a lot of the other environmental problems that we see as a result of, of traditional animal farming. But given our focus on the stage of company, it's mm-hmm. just a little too early for us. Uh, you know, a lot of these companies are, are years away from com- commercialization. So we're monitoring them. We're getting to know all the brands out there. And we will, I would expect probably in, in the next, I don't know, one to three years, probably have an investment in this space. So we're just, we're just patient right now. Yeah, no, that's probably smart. And, um, you know, I, want, I close out every podcast with this question. It's uh, you sound like you're a very optimistic person. I mean, given we were discussing the pandemic and you got me thinking about all the opportunities and possibilities ahead. So so if that's any indication. But so this is a very this is a great question for the optimist or someone who likes to look at the utopian scenario. I ask this of everyone who comes on the podcast is, we, you know, and the reason for it is we are 7.5 billion people on the planet expected to be 10 billion. In short, there's no way we can feed the world sustainably until we fix our food system. So if we do get it right, rather when we do get it right, when your portfolio companies uh, get it right, what is your best case scenario for a new food system in the year 2015? <laughs> oh, a new food system. Um, well, what I would say is, I'll, I'll, I'll make two points. Number one, uh, if I had to make a big bet, uh, I will make a bet that meat will cause traditional animal uh, protein will cost 5x what it does today uh, as stricter laws and taxes are put in place on animal farming. So that's number one. I think that would have a, a major change and impact on, on the food system. Uh, so that's number one. And then number two, I would say that uh, I think that, you know, th- this buzzword of regenerative agriculture will, will become uh, will, will become you know, really ingrained in, in the DNA and the fabric of our food system. Uh, I think it's just, it's, it's a necessary, it's, it's necessary to move in this direction. And hopefully in my utopian view, it goes from just not just regenerative agriculture, but our whole economy, you know, becomes a regenerative economy. I love that. Dan, thank you so much for your insights. It's been a real pleasure chatting with you today. And, um, and I look forward to doing it again soon. Yeah, thanks for having me, Neil. Always a pleasure to catch up. 
You've been listening to Eat for the Planet with Nil Zacharias. If you enjoyed this conversation and would like to show your support, please subscribe to the show and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. To learn more about how Eat for the Planet can help your brand or organization develop the right strategy, implement scalable operations, and grow responsibly, visit EFTP.co. That's EFTP.co. Let's rise up to the challenge of transforming our food system. Thank you for listening. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.